to the podcast, and thank you for listening. My name is Ian Castleberry. I'm a writer, editor, and podcaster. This edition of the podcast is going to be sports radio heavy, so I hope you enjoy listening to those segments as much as I enjoy doing them and getting to share them. With the end of the World Series, we had more radio appearances this week than anticipated, thanks to our friends at TSN 1260 in Edmonton, and we'll share those clips here. So we'll have three sports radio segments, two of which will focus on baseball, with the 2019 MLB season having just ended, and the Washington Nationals a surprising World Series champion. That's going to take up most of this show. I'd rather not go over an hour for an episode. I know your time is valuable, and I appreciate any of it you give to this podcast. And I'm guessing you'd prefer to spread that time around when you can. lot more to say on the Nationals, so let's begin with Wednesday's Wise Sports Radio baseball segment, recorded hours before Game 7 of the World Series. The Nationals risked losing Game 6 on a controversial runner interference call. Pat Ryan and I also discussed the possibility of an electronic strike zone in the future, along with two women banned from MLB ballparks for flashing Houston Astros pitcher Garrett Cole in Game 5. Ian Castleberry joining the wise guys, and we've got lots of Major League Baseball goodies to get to. It's presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. Ian, good afternoon, buddy. And, wow, this World Series has been interesting. Not only have all the road, the road teams won each game heading into uh, tonight's deciding Game 7, but there's been a little controversy as well. Um, some uh, humorous, others not so. Let's, let's start with the not-so-humorous controversy, buddy. Despite that controversial call that went against them, the Nats continue to be the road warrior and, and keep that theme going in this World Series. They beat Verlander and the Astros 7-2. to two. And, Ian, Game 7 uh, is tonight, and that's what we want to get to just right off the bat here, buddy. And that is Washington has been able to put Verlander at 0-2 in this series, and, and that's been impressive so far. But um, how do you look at that controversial call that night, it got Davey Martinez, uh, the Nats manager, ejected. Uh, Joe Torrey, the head of uh, Major League Baseball in, in the Rules Committee, call it what you want. He basically said, that's not reviewable. It's a judgment call. Was that judgment call correct in your mind? Boy, I mean, in the heat of the moment, I certainly thought it was a terrible call, just like uh, virtually everybody else. Trey Turner, he was running down the bag. Uh, yes, he was running outside the lane. He was running uh, in fair territory had uh, Yuli Gurriel, the Astros' uh, first baseman, not drop the ball, and Brad Peacock threw the ball toward Turner, which, uh, you know, John Smoltz said during the broadcast that you're taught to do that as a, as a pitcher, throw at the runner so you can get that uh, interference call. <laughs> it, it looked like a bad judgment call at the time, but I hate saying this, but if, if you look at the rule book and, and Turner was outside of the lane and he, he ran back into it to, to get the bag, the first base bag's in fair territory. The batter's box is in fair territory. Normally, I don't think that call's made. So why is it made, you know, in game six uh, of the World Series uh, in the seventh inning? It, it was a moot point once uh, Anthony Rendon hit a two-run homer uh, shortly after that. Boy, I, again, I hate saying that the umpires followed the rule book and made the right call. I, just, I wonder if that was, you know, if, if it is a judgment call, was that the right call uh, in the right moment? And 
How much time did it waste? You know, you, you had a seven seven minute delay, I believe, in reviewing a call that supposedly isn't reviewable. The umpires are there with the headphones. They're waiting for Joe Torrey to say something. Trey Turner in, from the Nationals dugout is basically saying, Joe Torrey's right there, but he's got his head down because he doesn't want to look up. Why don't you just go over there and ask him, uh, which was a great moment. But just thankful, I, I'm thankful that this didn't, didn't cost the Nationals. Yeah, for sure. Otherwise, it would everyone would be freaking out at this point. I saw the play, and I can see the judgment call on that. Bang, bang, play. It was really close. It's like, gosh, man, you got to really stay within those lines. It's easier to drive in a lane down Patton Avenue than it is to stay on the straight on the baselines uh, in, in baseball. But uh, as Tori said... Can I say also, though, yeah. in, in the next inning, Jose Altuve hit a ground ball, and he was running to first base. He was running inside the line, too. You know, had the throw hit. Uh, Altuve or interfered with Ryan Zimmerman at first base. We know would they have made that same call? So I mean, it's, it's it, you know, Trey Turner is just doing what he does, uh, what most base runners do out of a, a right-handed uh, batter's box. Uh, Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. Now, speaking of that controversial call, Ian, which got Nats manager uh, Dave Martinez uh, ejected, uh, you, you mentioned that Trey Turner, or rather um, the first baseman, uh, Yuli Gurriel. Um, yeah, I mean, if he doesn't hang, hang up, if he catches that ball, uh, but again, I mean, that you could see where the ball was thrown, and as Smoltz, he pointed out, yeah, you're going to try and aim for the base runner. Well, you know, I, I don't know what how much more room Turner could have run through. I, I, I that well, it's just kind of weird in the first place. And God, I hope they don't. Right. I hope they don't go to like robot umpires for calls like this. Uh, which, by the way, we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but certainly, as you mentioned, it's a play that did not have an impact on the outcome of the game. And that means we've got a game seven tonight, Ian. And Nat says Mark Scherzer, who could not move his arm on Sunday due to neck spasms. Well, tonight, he's a Game 7 starter opposite Zach Greinke. Wow, uh, I know they've been giving him shots to loosen up uh, that area there, but Ian, how confident are you that Scherzer is truly 100%, and how much can the team expect from him tonight? Boy, it, it doesn't seem like he would be able to. As you pointed out, on Sunday, you know, he couldn't even put his shirt on. He, he needed help with that, uh, you know, and anybody who's had neck or back spasms know how uh, debilitating those can be, but most of us don't have, uh, you know, the advantage of a, a major league or a professional training staff working on us for three straight days. So between uh, cortisone shots and chiropractors working on him, uh, you know, supposedly Scherzer could have pitched last night uh, if needed. Uh, it had the game gone two extra innings or, you know, the, the Nationals not uh, created that five-run cushion in the ninth inning. So I I assume he's going to be able to pitch. You know, I, I would hate to be Davey Martinez trying to tell him that he can't pitch. Scherzer would uh, go right at him. But, uh, you know, Scherzer has averaged six innings per postseason start. He pitched five innings uh, last time out. And I think the advantage here is that, you know, it, this is an all-hands-on-deck situation for a Game 7, that if Scherzer doesn't have it within the first couple innings, I think you're going to see uh, Patrick Corbin, Anibal Sanchez uh, come into the game relatively quickly. Uh, Dave Martinez probably wanting to avoid having to use those relievers uh, at least until the eighth inning when he can go to Sean Doolittle and Daniel Hudson. Who do you like to take it all tonight? Well, just like this whole series, I mean, the logical side of me says the Astros are the better team. Their pitching staff is set up really well. Uh, they have the deeper batting order. But, gosh, the Nats, they just continue uh, to defy expectations. And I, I think they thrive under pressure. And I, I think that 
playing on the road is also a good situation for them. They don't feel the pressure uh, of having to win uh, in front of their home fans and bring D.C. its first uh, World Series championship. So the head says Astros, but I'm going to go with the heart here uh, and, and say that uh, the Nationals are going to pull this off. You know, I know no World Series team has ever won four road games, but that means that there's a first time for everything, right? And I think we have a chance to see something incredible tonight. We may even see Steven Strasburg pitch an inning uh, if necessary. If, yeah. if so, you know, you got to put him up there, you know, with Randy Johnson's, Kurt Schilling's, Madison Bumgarner's of just like the all-time great performances uh, in a World Series. Uh, yeah, and, and on the flip side, you think the Astros could roll out Verlander, Garrett Cole if if needed? Uh, definitely Garrett Cole. Verlander, yeah, I think it's possible, but I, you know, I think Verlander's gassed. I mean, he's pitched uh, 258 innings this season, at 223 in the regular season, 35 this postseason, and the Nationals really wore him down last night. You know, he only had one, one, two, three inning. Every inning had at least one batter go to a 2 2 or 3 2 count. Uh, he nearly threw 100 pitches. Strasburg, I, I was surprised that he didn't pitch uh, the complete game. I almost wonder if Davey Martinez was thinking, hey, you know, we can use those pitches uh, in a game seven tomorrow night. Ian Castleberry joining the Wise Guys. We're uh, talking World Series Game 7 presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. All right, Ian, let's let's move away uh, from the field if we can here for a few questions. And want to get your thoughts. We were talking yesterday about, or rather Monday, about the Pirates and the Red Sox uh, shaking up their front office. What other teams could also be looking uh, at doing the same thing? I don't know if anybody else is in danger of losing their job this offseason. Uh, maybe Michael Hill of the Miami Marlins just because he's the general manager of the Marlins. And Derek Jeter doesn't seem to know what he's doing in running that team. <laughs> I think there are several general managers that could be on the hot seat at this time next year if uh, you know things don't go well. I think Jerry Depoto of the Mariners, uh, Billy Epler of the Angels, even though he just hired Joe Madden, uh, he's only under contract uh, for one more season. Uh, I think Dayton Moore with the Royals. You have to question whether or not uh, you know, even though he's won a World Series, they have not done a good job since then. Uh, and uh, having to hire a new manager as well. I think Matt Klentak of the Phillies is also uh, on notice, uh, having uh, uh, hired Joe Girardi. And, uh, you know, I don't think that the ownership has liked the way Klintak has put together this team. And I hope Al Avila of the Detroit Tigers is on notice as well. <laughs> I would love, you know, I don't want to see anyone lose their job, but. He is a terrible general manager, and I would love to see uh, the Detroit Tigers make a move there. You know, these guys, I know it's like, you know, I don't want to see anyone lose their job. I, 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 I'm I, with you on that, but, you know, when you're you're making like, you know, a million plus a year, um, you know, I, I'm, I, it doesn't hit me as hard emotionally. It's like, man, I wouldn't mind pulling in a million a year. And, you know, those guys, they probably get paid, you know, for the remainder of their contract. It's, it's crazy. But I hear you on that. Detroit definitely needs a shakeup in its front office. Um, all right, Ian, I want to ask you this. Would you be in favor of baseball instituting an electronic strike zone? I am in favor of this. What? Uh, most, yeah, I think that the technology is there. And I think one – one misunderstanding is, uh, I, uh, and tell, tell me if you're under this impression as well, Pat, but the umpire is still going to be there behind home plate. We're just talking about balls and strikes. You know, the cameras and the computers are going to make their judgment, and the home plate umpire is going to have an earpiece and be told whether uh, it's a, a ball or a strike. But the home plate umpire still has to be there, you know, whether there was a foul tip, or, you know, a play like we saw last night, you know, running down the line. Is, is it a runner's interference? You know, plays at the plate. 
I, the, the technology is there uh, with the cameras, uh, with the computers. I th- from what I understand, uh, Major League Baseball is, is ready to go forward with this, employing the same company. Unfortunately, I can't remember the company's name. I'm sorry. But it's the same company that uh, employs technology uh, in tennis matches. And, you know, if you watch tennis on TV, you see exactly where the ball lands, whether it's uh, out or in. You're going to see a similar situation uh, with the strike zone. And I think the home plate umpire will still have the authority to overturn a call, uh, you know, if he doesn't think uh, the correct call is made, or again, if it's a foul tip uh, or something like that. But I think uh, with the technology in place to have that help and, and have a electronic uh, strike zone, as you, as you said, uh, a computer calling balls and strikes, I think is uh it's the future. I think uh, baseball needs to do it. I mean, just because the technology is there doesn't mean you. Ha- doesn't mean it's it's a benefit. Doesn't mean you have to use it. Um, and and that's interesting. I don't know that the, you know. Obviously, the umps will be there. I get that. What if an ump overrules the computer? You don't think a manager is going to go bonkers? But to me, it just all comes down to the human element of the game, and that's what makes baseball, I think, one of the most unique sports. Is that we always talk about the umpire, the umpire. I mean, that's that's how it's always. Been in with baseball uh umpires tend to stand out a little bit more than say officials in the nba and, and in the um, the nfl i just think the human element don't take that away because that is what is part of what makes baseball exciting i think once you start going with the electronic strike zone then you're going to start moving forward because we have the technology and i just don't want to see that happen to baseball we'll wait and see on that though i know there's a lot there- I mean, it is opinions. interesting. I agree with you on the human element, and there, that, that is a dimension to the game, you know, that certain umpires have uh, different strike zones and pitchers have to adjust to that. I also think this is, you know, we always talk about pace of play and, and the, the pace of the game in baseball. I think this could increase pace of play if because, you know, the, the low strike doesn't always get called. If the true strike zone gets called, you know, you're not going to have these three, two counts uh, on, on every batter because, you know, they're nibbling at the corners or, or you know, the, the umpire's strike zone doesn't fit where the pitcher is throwing. Uh, if a computer is calling the strike zone and more strikes are called, I think that could move the game along a little more. That's okay. I, I hear where you're coming from there, but, you know, how much is that going to save? I mean, and by the way, every time baseball tries to increase the time, well, it, we're seeing improvement there. I don't think it's where Major League Baseball truly wants it to be. I, I, I would just hate to have anything taken out of the hands of the umpires and let the umpires, um, you know, make those. And let's face it, I mean, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you know, the studies are there. They're right on these calls. And it's like, you know, let's, let's just not, let's just not push these guys aside. Uh, uh, for for technology, that's where I come from. And again, as I'd mentioned, Ian, there's there's there are pundits on both sides of this argument. We'll see which way uh, Commissioner Manfred and uh, the owners go with this. As uh, Ian Castleberry plays with the Wise Guys, presented by Vistanet Telecommunications, and Ian Baseball has banned three women from MLB ballparks after they flashed their. <clears throat> assets at Astros pitcher Garrett Cole during Game 5. Um, by the way, some would say that was a highlight of Game 5. Uh, we should point out Cole was not affected. <laughs> he pitched very well. And the women, by the way, who appeared to be representing a digital X-rated magazine, said they flashed Cole on national TV to raise awareness for breast cancer. One of the owners of this digital website says she's uh, having breast cancer. Okay, they wanted to get the word out in an in- in unique and interesting way. I'm not sure that worked, Ian, but that act may have raised more than just awareness for some baseball fans. Right. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, promoting a uh, uh, an adult website, I think it's called shagmag.com if everybody wants to run home and uh, get to their web browsers <laughs> or check on their phone right now, shagmag.com. Uh, you Careful, can see, guys. Uh, you can see the uh, talents uh, that these three women uh, brought to the plate uh, for game five. Wow, and look, you uh, did your show prep, and I appreciate that, man. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I wanted to make sure I knew uh, exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> and on, honestly, I did want to see if they were legitimately uh, promoting uh, breast cancer or trying to raise awareness. Uh, uh, that's a noble uh, gesture if uh, that was indeed uh, some some of their intention. I don't think that quite came across, however, uh, in uh, in their actions. No, indeed. And, you know, it's so funny because, like, Major League Baseball saying, you can never come into another Major League Baseball ballpark again. And I'm thinking, they probably have never been in a Major League ballpark. You know, the chances are very high. It's not like you're crushing uh, the hopes and dreams of... of- How's that? Go ahead. How's that going to be enforced, by the way? You know, like uh, at at the gate, are are they going to have a picture? And, uh, okay, pull your shirt up. All right, all right. Oh, you guys. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to get to the side. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. How does that happen? I mean, how can you you enforce that? I don't think you can. I think this is just more of a a stand by Major League Baseball to to say, hey, we don't allow this anymore. Um, You know, I'm just kind of glad it wasn't some guys, uh, you know flashing um for for sure but obviously game yeah, let's, let's hope uh, nobody gets those ideas uh no kidding right you don't need to see that in a game seven <laughs> yeah no kidding dude i mean you know they had the whole thing with the president you know being booed at the ballpark uh then you had in game five then you had this coming up in game five my god how did the players focus on the game uh itself uh <laughs> but they did and uh we're, we're glad they did this certainly it, it, you gotta wonder you know if if more or more folks are going to be doing these type of stunts uh, moving forward. You know, if they wanted attention, they certainly got it. And their names are, are uh, in these articles. Uh, the, the footage is is uh, online because, uh, you know, this was caught by uh, the, the Fox cameras, you know, in center field uh, before uh, Garrett Cole threw a pitch. Uh, yeah, I think we are going to see uh, this sort of thing happen again. It's not like bringing a sign in or, you know, like Detroit Red Wings fans trying to sneak in an octopus. Uh <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I think we probably will see more of this. I'm going to say that's a bad thing. Well, you know, hey, maybe I should just, uh, you know, flash my gut for colon cancer at one of these games. I Awareness, I, I'm not quite sure, but uh, it certainly was a story to talk about. Ian, appreciate you, bud. Can't wait to catch you tomorrow. Talk up uh, some NFL headlines. All right. Happy to do the uh, research on the uh, Shagmag topic. <laughs> yes, thanks, man, very Thank much. You. So we didn't have to. Appreciate you, buddy. You're welcome. All right. Talk to you tomorrow, Pat. Later, Ian. You bet, buddy. Thank you. Ian Cassaberry, uh, presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. We need to talk more about those World Series champion Washington Nationals. Those last five words aren't ones that many, if any, baseball fans and observers were expecting to say at the end of the season. By the time you listen to this, the Nats may have already had their championship parade through Washington, D.C., The Nats were such a great story, embodying the unexpected result that can make sports so joyful to watch. Well, maybe not for the side that was expected to win. The Houston Astros looked like an unbeatable juggernaut. They had the best record in baseball during the regular season, winning 107 games. Three stellar starting pitchers in Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, and Zach Greinke. A lineup full of stars such as Jose Altuve, George Springer, Alex Bregman, and Carlos Correa. The Astros looked so imposing that it may have affected the World Series TV ratings. The 2019 World Series was the third least viewed ever. 
few were interested in watching what appeared to be a sure outcome. So Howie Kendrick, the former Dodger, has a chance to put the Nationals in front here in the 10th inning in Game 5. Swinging a fly ball, center field deep. Bellinger going back to the warning track, to the wall. It's a grand slam. Howie Kendrick has done it. They're going crazy in the Nationals' dugout. Do you believe it? Even getting to the World Series was an impressive feat for the Nationals. The Nats qualified for the postseason as a wild card, with one of the five best win-loss records in their league, but not good enough to win their division. The Atlanta Braves won the National League East division. Winning one of the two wild card spots means playing in a one-game playoff, the winner of which then has to play the team with the league's best record. It's typically too high a hurdle to overcome. Yet the Nationals seemed to enjoy the tough climb. They did it throughout the season. On May 23rd, the Nats had a 19-31 and record. Their bullpen wasn't giving them a chance to win. And after losing one of baseball's brightest young stars when Bryce Harper signed with the Philadelphia Phillies as a free agent, Washington's lineup lacked an impact bat, but the Nationals had that starting pitching. Steven Strasburg was the ace team's dream of. His 10th season with the team was probably the best of his career. Max Scherzer was signed as a big-money free agent to team with Strasburg and give the Nats a pair of starters very few teams could match. Then, with the money that the team didn't spend on Harper, the Nats added this year's top free agent pitcher in Patrick Corbin. Three aces, any one of whom would be the number one guy on another team. And they were all in the same starting rotation. He was there with one out, now there with two out. And Rendon shoots one in the left. Back at the wall, it is gone! Anthony Rendon! And even though they lost Harper, the Nationals still had their best hitter. No, Anthony Rendon isn't as spectacular or powerful as Bryce Harper. Maybe he can't do as many things on a baseball field. But Rendon is a far more consistent batter, much more reliable defensively. He just doesn't draw as much attention to himself unless his performance do all the talking. The Nationals also had reliable, experienced veterans, such as face of the franchise Ryan Zimmerman, Adam Eaton, Howie Kendrick, and Kurt Suzuki. They're the kind of over 30 years old players that most baseball teams have decided don't have much value in the current model of building a team. But Washington also has the sort of young talent that teams covet with Trey Turner and burgeoning superstar Juan Soto. It's an ideal mix of experience and youth. And without Harper sucking all of the air out of the clubhouse, others got to shine. Or maybe it's more like no one felt like they had to shine because anyone could be a star on a particular day. We certainly saw that in the postseason. It could be Eaton, Soto, Rendon, or Kendrick. Zimmerman was capable of the big hit, too. Kendrick was the most improbable, however. A 36-year-old role player who really didn't have a position on the field and was presumably long past his prime when he was a solid but not spectacular player. Yet he could still hit. Maybe he was even getting better at it as he got older. Kendrick batted 344 during the regular season, and he slugged two of the biggest home runs of the Nats' World Series run. A 10th inning grand slam off the Dodgers' Joe Kelly in Game 5 of the NLDS, and a three-run homer off Will Harris in Game 7 of the World Series. Hitting 176 against him. That's down the right field line into the corner. This ball is gone for a home run. 
Nationals on top. Howie Kendrick has made it 3-2. Off the pole and right. Most baseball general managers don't view aging veterans like Kendrick as very valuable anymore. But he was a major impact player for the Nationals, one of many reasons why this team continually defied expectations and was such a joy to watch through October. Going into the 2019 season, I was as disinterested in baseball as I can remember. I haven't had a regular baseball writing gig in a couple of years and felt like I had to try and write about other subjects, though I still talked about baseball on the radio. I didn't subscribe to MLB TV for the first time in 10 years because the Detroit Tigers were so terrible. At one point during the season, I couldn't remember what channel MLB Network was on my cable system. Really. The season was going to lack drama. One of maybe six teams put themselves in position to win. So many other teams are now actively trying not to win. And the style of play, with so many strikeouts and the ball not being put in play, was increasingly boring to watch on TV. But the playoffs, the postseason, is a different game. Nearly every pitch can be dramatic, and heavy favorites can be beaten. The Astros and Dodgers were the best teams in baseball, and the Nationals beat both of them. It wasn't supposed to be like this, but the Nats just didn't care. The Nats really struggling. The way they've played, I'm worried. 19 to 31, the fourth worst record in baseball. You can't pinpoint their identity. I told them, hey, let's go 1-0 every day. And if we do that, we'll be where we need to be at the end of the year. This team thrived under the pressure of their season possibly ending, even as far back as the end of May when they were 12 games under 500 and 10 games behind in the NL East. There were four more months to be played in the season. Knowing they couldn't let up, the Nationals seemingly never did. They went 18-8 and in June, 19-7 in August. During the second half of the season, the Nationals went 46-27, and winning 63% of their games. Facing elimination in the National League Divisional Series, Washington won two straight games. The same thing happened in the World Series, and that was more impressive because both of those games were at Houston. But the Nats also won the first two games of the series at Houston's Minute Maid Park. No team had ever won four road games in the World Series, but that just provided another hurdle for the Nationals to leap over. These guys scoffed at history and consensus. This Nationals team made baseball fun to watch for me again, and I'm grateful for that. I hate potentially coming off as some kind of bandwagon fan with the Nationals. I really don't think I am. At heart, I'm a Detroit Tigers fan. But I've had an interest in Washington, D.C. sports for more than 20 years, thanks largely to listening to Tony Kornheiser's radio show and podcast and being a daily reader of the Washington Post. I followed the pursuit to bring baseball back to the nation's capital whenever developments were reported in the Post, often reading those articles between classes when I was at the University of Iowa. I felt badly for Montreal, which lost the Expos when the team moved to D.C. in 2005. But I was excited to see what baseball in Washington would look like. Here's the pitch. Swing and a fly ball center field. Church backing over to his left weights. He's there. He's got it. He's got it. And the ball game is over. And the Washington Nationals have won their home opener and the first regular season game in Washington, D.C. since September of 1971 is in the books. 
playing in the old crumbling RFK stadium with Levon Hernandez, Christian Guzman, Ryan Church, Nick Johnson, Brad Wilkerson, and Jose Guillen, the Nats finished 500 in their first season, 81 wins and 81 losses. Closer Chad Cordero and his flat-billed cap racked up 47 saves. One of my favorite sports writers, the Post's Barry Sverluga, wrote about that inaugural season in his book National Pastime. That book should be far more beloved among baseball fans than it is. And the Post has had many other fantastic writers cover baseball over the years, including Tom Boswell, Dave Scheinan, Adam Kilgore, Chico Harlan, Chelsea Janes, and Jesse Doherty. The Post baseball coverage has been some of my favorite to read over the past 15 years. The Nationals' early success probably set the expectations too high, as the team really struggled for the next five seasons, twice losing more than 100 games. But the plan came together in 2012. That happened to be the same year I was hired by Bleacher Report as a lead writer to cover the National League. That meant I watched the Washington Nationals a lot, as they finished with the best record in the league. Pitcher Steven Strasburg returned from reconstructive elbow surgery after a blazing start to his career and was controversially shut down in early September. Was it to save his arm, or was it because the team thought he wasn't handling the pressure of a pennant race well? Rookie sensation Bryce Harper was called up from the minors in June, which seemed too soon, and I took a lot of crap when I wrote that at the time. The Nats lost in the divisional round to the St. Louis Cardinals, however. Maybe it was just a bit too early for them. Unfortunately, the Nationals couldn't fulfill their potential for the next five, maybe six seasons when they were viewed as a favorite to win and couldn't even get to the National League Championship Series, let alone the World Series. After Harper left, the Nationals looked like a team whose chance to win was dwindling as their roster got older. Yeah, what do we know? Those older players still had plenty to contribute, and maybe took on more of an edge with the presumption that they would be worse without Harper. The Nats certainly became much more of a team without one star getting all of the spotlight, and in the end, they all got to take a bow with the sport's biggest trophy. What a team, what a run. As the Nationals are a strike away from franchise history and some World Series history, as Hudson tries to close it out, it'll be another 3-2 pitch. To Michael Brantley. Hudson sets. The kick and here it comes. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books. The celebration is on. The Washington Nationals are the world champions. Following that World Series victory, I was pleasantly surprised to hear from Matthew Owanek of Edmonton's TSN 1260 asking if I could reflect on the Nationals' shocking win with host Dave Jamison, look at how this team will be remembered historically, and whether or not other teams can emulate Washington's model for success. Talking with our Canadian friends also means I'm going to play Glass Tiger again. Okay, I really wanted to play another Canadian rock band like the Tragically Hip, but as much as I love the hip, that's music you got to be in the mood to listen to, and I felt like it was bringing the energy down. Sorry, Gord. I miss you, but I got to keep it upbeat.
joining us now, Ian Castleberry. You can hear him on WISE Sports Radio and listen to the podcast. Ian, when baseball historians write the story of this World Series, uh, how are they going to render judgment on what we just saw? I think it's a testament to starting pitching. You and I talked uh, before the postseason began, and we talked about uh, how the Washington Nationals had not lived up to expectations over the past five, uh, maybe six seasons. But uh, th- this is a historic pitching staff just in terms of uh, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin. And they were able to do this without a bullpen, which yeah. is, really runs counter to most of what's been viewed as a successful formula to winning a World Series championship over the past, say, five, probably even more, five to ten seasons. Well, that said, and it's a, it's a great summation of, of what the Nationals did, we know that after a World Series or a championship of any kind, other teams will copy. Is this, can you replicate what they did on some level if you were to follow this model? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think so. I, I think uh, if teams do try to uh, emulate the Nationals' formula, uh, it's not going to work out well for them. First of all, uh, you know, unless you have all-time Hall of Fame-type starting pitchers like Steven Strasburg, like Max Scherzer, adding Patrick Corbin uh, in there, I'm not sure uh, a team would even have a chance. But then you're also talking about a roster, a lineup that's populated with uh, quite a few 30 and older players, and those sorts of players have really become uh, kind of ignored uh, in the baseball marketplace. So when teams build rosters, I you know I don't. It's difficult to imagine another general manager saying, okay, go out and find me uh, Howie Kendrick or go out and find me uh, an Adam Eaton. Uh, Certainly the the Nationals do have some uh, great young stars as well, Anthony Rendon, Juan Soto. But uh, I I just think in terms of not being able to put together a bullpen, making the playoffs as a wild card, and then just playing over their heads seemingly against the Dodgers, against the Astros, I I don't see how another team could successfully repeat that. Watching, I heard, I forget which of the analysts last night that I was listening to said Juan Soto is a mix of Ricky Henderson, Reggie Jackson, I forget the third player in there, all of them brilliant, all of them great, and I didn't feel when I heard that that it was a stretch for in that in that comparison because it's like he was built in a baseball laboratory. Give me someone that can do all of the things that you need to be great, and he's got them all. Absolutely. And he really has the mentality that I think thrives in the postseason environment. I mean, you could see he was still having fun out there, you know, in the seventh inning of game seven of the World Series. You know, that's a a circumstance, a a setting that would be too big for many 20, 21 year old players. And it just didn't seem to phase him at all. Uh, He has the right mentality. Uh, Again, at only 21 years old, I think we've just seen the beginning of of what could be one of the great stars in Major League Baseball. Hopefully he improves his defense a little bit. That Mm -hmm. might make him, uh, you know, a truly complete player in Major League Baseball. But uh, yeah, I agree uh, with what you said. A little bit of Ricky, a little bit of Reggie, and a star. They did not miss Bryce Harper, largely because of Juan Soto. Ian Castlebury joining us here on TSN 1260. A.J. Hinch, did he overthink at pulling Greinke after 80 pitches? I think he did. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Greinke was one bad or missed strike call away uh, from getting out of uh, trouble in the sixth inning, I believe. And the Nationals just didn't seem to have an answer for them. You know, he was mixing speeds. 
locating uh, all over the strike zone, really controlling the strike zone. I think uh, pulling Grinky in that situation was overthinking it. Maybe Hinch had a, a pitch limit in mind or, uh, you know, an innings limit in mind. Of course, you can also fault, you know, not bringing in Garrett Cole in that situation as opposed to uh, Will Harris. But, you know, when a pitcher is, is going as well as, Grinky was. I don't know unless he really got in trouble why you would pull him from that game. The Astros are denied, at least for this year, the uh, you know the opportunity to say, well, we're you know a dynasty or or something approaching a dynasty. It, 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 this doesn't feel like a team that's going to fade and go away. Now they're built with, you know, they've got some legs to this team. They may lose a few people somewhere along the way, but they're still the core is there and and very good and and still you know relatively young. The Astros are the model for how you would build a Major League Baseball team. You, know, you asked, uh, you know, will other teams emulate uh, what the Nationals did? Other teams need to emulate the way the Astros are doing it because they have veteran talent, they have young stars, and then they also add in continually turnover with rookies. You know, Jordan Alvarez, uh, we saw Jose Urquidy, who's going to be a future uh, star in that rotation as well. Yes, they'll lose Garrett Cole, but they had the resources to get Zach Greinke to replace him. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Astros uh, make uh, another move to try and get starting pitching, either during the offseason or during the trade deadline. But uh, no, this is not an, a team that's aging, that looks like you know the window is closing uh, anytime soon. Uh, most valuable player they could have maybe awarded you know two guys that distinction but Strasburg was he a clear favorite for you no I don't think he was a clear favorite as you said there you know I think there were three four choices you could have gone with yeah. I think I would have if I was voting I would have chose Anthony Rendon because he just has so many big hits uh, including uh, in Game Seven but you know two outstanding starts in the World Series it didn't become a situation in Game 7 where uh, you know Strasburg might have come in in relief but in terms of great World Series performances by a starting pitcher you know up there with the Randy Johnsons Kurt Schillings uh, Madison Bumgarners that we've seen it certainly cannot take issue with Steven Strasburg uh, getting most valuable player in just over 100 days until the first spring training game uh, we appreciate your analysis as always and uh, we will talk to you once we get baseball going again I can't wait. Thanks so much for having me on, Dave. All right. Ian Castlebury there. Uh, we like his work a great deal around here, and uh, there you have it. To close out, some NFL talk from Thursday's Y Sports Radio segment. We covered the increasing tension surrounding the Cleveland Browns and quarterback Baker Mayfield, who have been hugely disappointing this season. Ohio's other NFL team, the Cincinnati Bengals, isn't faring much better, and just benched longtime quarterback Andy Dalton. One team that hasn't been disappointing is the San Francisco 49ers, who improved 8-0 Thursday night. But we also had to rip on Chicago Bears quarterback Mitchell Trubisky. Right now, let's go to the Wise Lines. Always a treat to catch up with uh, Ian Castleberry joining us for our uh, NFL Gold Nuggets feature. And, of course, we'll talk a little baseball as well because that always pops up. And Ian's appearance presented by David Creaseman and the gang at D.C. Creaseman Jewelers. Ian, how you doing, lad? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Excellent. Mike Gore uh, in with me today. 
Hey there, Mike. How are you? Doing great, Ian. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, let's start first. Ian, uh, quickly, uh, a baseball note. Uh, Mike Matheny, former Cardinals manager, is staying in the state of Missouri. He's with Kansas City, just hired by the Royals, who have been horrific pretty much since they won the World Series four years ago. Ian, how do you like this hire for uh, Kansas City? I don't like this hire for Kansas City. Uh, Mike Matheny, he certainly has uh, plenty of experience as a major league manager, uh, seven seasons with the Cardinals, very successful, uh, a uh, 55 winning percentage, uh, three NL Central titles, one wild card, one National League pennant, uh, losing the World Series uh, in 2013 to the Red Sox. But, you know, when Mike Matheny took that job uh, over from Tony La Russa, I think there was a, a pretty wide perception that Matheny took over a team that he just had to stay out of the way of the veteran players and not mess anything up. And not to say that he just sat there uh, as a manager, and, and I'm sure he, he improved uh, over those seven seasons. But the big knock against uh, Mike Matheny in St. Louis is, is how he handled younger players, and he often sat younger players uh, playing the hot hand uh, and preferring veterans. And uh, there was a lot of talk that there was division in that Cardinals clubhouse between veterans and younger players uh, and rookies. So here you are, Mike Matheny, taking over a rebuilding team that's going to be uh, largely stocked with younger players. Now, Matheny has played a role in developing many of these players. Uh, that, that's been his job uh, with the Royals since he left St. Louis, is a special advisor in player development. But I do wonder if he's the right guy uh, to take over a young rebuilding team or if he's not better uh, leading a more veteran club. Ian, that's a great point. Uh, as you know, Asheville's Mike Schultz uh, took over for Mike Matheny. And boy, uh, they're you know, reading the St. Louis papers. And of course, you probably have more insight. Does, you know, Matheny not only didn't do a good job, young players. He he didn't like analytics. He didn't right. like, he, he didn't like explaining things to uh, you know to the media and stuff and everything. He got a little, as the old saying goes, big for his britches and everything. And and and, and it was and it was veterans that uh, that that the end. That was really a splintered clubhouse um, in St. Louis. I mean, uh, you know, we talked about in the last hour with Joe Micklick about uh, about how Mike Schultz kind of um, uh, a, a kind of a revived a Dexter Fowler's career and stuff. And um, you know, it just was interesting. It did not end well in St. Louis for him. No, I, I just think it's a curious choice uh, for the Royals. And I think they had their eyes on Matheny all along since bringing uh, him into the organization. I think uh, the plan all along was for him to succeed Ned Yost. Uh, the Royals, as far as I know, didn't interview any outside candidates uh, once Ned Yost uh, announced his retirement. Now, that's not to say that Matheny hasn't learned from his mistakes. Uh, I'm sure uh, you know Royals fans have to hope that he's much better at managing a bullpen, for instance, right. uh, than he was. Uh, with the Cardinals, and as we've seen uh, in many sports, sometimes uh, it's the second job, the second opportunity, where uh, a manager or a coach uh, really gets to shine and, and apply what they've learned. Uh, Ian Castleberry is joining the Wise Guys, getting a little uh, baseball conversation in there with uh, uh, Mike Matheny. I almost said Pat Matheny, but that's the jazz fusion guitar player. Uh, wrong Matheny there. Um, but, uh, of course... He may have been the better choice. <laughs> oh, look at that, man. All right, well, he might be the better choice, but I'll tell you what, the music piping through uh, Royal Stadium will be much nicer. All right, let's get to the NFL, where Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield gets in a testy exchange or into a testy exchange with the reporter yesterday. Mayfield showing impatience with the reporter, but Ian, while Baker still needs to grow up, I thought the reporter from a Cleveland radio station was a bit dopey in his questions uh, to Mayfield. Having said that, though, Mayfield needs to handle these situations 
better. Just period. He needs to handle this better. He's not playing uh, well enough to be condescending to a reporter. Ian, is this a sign that, to you anyway, that the Browns and especially Mayfield are feeling the pressure of not meeting the hype attached to this team in the offseason? And are there concerns that that locker room, uh, those cracks will turn into just a fear, just blowing up? Oh, I think, yeah, I think those are very valid concerns. You know, uh, when things are going well, Baker Mayfield, he's, he's happy with the media, with the fans. He's doing all of his commercials. You know, if the Browns had a good record and Mayfield was playing well, I imagine his demeanor with that reporter uh, would have been much better. Now, not to say, as you pointed out, Pat, I mean, that, that, that reporter, uh, Tony Grassi, he has a bit of a reputation. If you Google him during uh, the, the past uh, five, eight years that he's covered uh, uh, the Cleveland Browns, he's gotten into some trouble himself for some of the stuff that he's erroneously reported. And he interrupted Mayfield when he was answering a question, which is what I think set Mayfield off to begin with. But it's a bad look. Uh, You compare how Mayfield answered that question with, I don't know if uh, you and Mike and the listeners have seen how Deshaun Watson has handled questions like that uh, after uh, the Texans games. You know, he's been asked questions about, you know, what, what did you see on that drive? What did you see in this scheme? And Deshaun Watson practically turns it into quarterback school. You know, he talks about the, <laughs> yeah. the schemes that they're they're facing. You know, the safety's coming up, so you know you're looking here, and, and, it, and it's like, uh, you know, ESPN should hire him to do the new uh, John Gruden QB camp because it really is football school. And, and rather than uh, taking an opportunity like that, Baker Mayfield to uh, you know inform. Uh, what you know, on one hand, could seem like a dumb question. You know, you know, did, what did you like that drive? No, because it, we didn't score points. But uh, there, there is a way to answer that question as to you know, like, oh yeah, we thought we moved the ball well on short passes or stuff like that. That had Mayfield been, been playing better or was in a better mindset with the media, maybe he could have handled that better. Um, gee, this is a real shock. A team with Baker Mayfield as their quarterback, 22, 23 years old. Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry. Gosh, there's going to be problems in the locker room. God, who saw this coming? Ha, ha, ha. What volatile mix. And then, then you throw a rookie head coach yes. uh, in charge uh, to, to try and corral uh, all of those personalities and, and bring some discipline. And as we've seen, Freddie Kitchens has done an absolutely terrible job with that. Uh, yeah, I- indeed. And, and you know, and I think what's happening, too, going back to Shoop's point, Shoop said, you know, the way this all went down in Cleveland with Kitchens, you know, getting the support of coaches to get this job, and then he fires those coaches. The fact that you combine that with the hype of the Browns, and Shoop said, man, defensive coordinators, I'm telling you, there are defensive coordinators out there that cannot wait. They are they are foaming at the mouth to get a shot at Baker Mayfield, and we're seeing this happen in Mayfield right now. And granted, that reporter that was such you know that reporter. I mean, Baker Mayfield describes uh, the drive, and it was not a good drive. And at the end, the reporter says, "So, um, so what? You, you know, you didn't like the drive." I mean, it's just like, dude. I mean, this is why people get on the media, like doofuses right. like you. Um, but at the same time, you know, Baker, like say, you handle it like Deshaun Watson. Um, that's why Deshaun Watson is where he is right now, and and Baker is at the moment where he is. There are a lot of folks saying this is done for, this is over for Baker Mayfield if he's showing, uh, uh, you know, basically if he's his skill sets decreasing in the NFL, maybe there's no hope for him. I, I disagree with that. I just don't think he's in a good situation. I don't think Freddie Kitchens has been any help to him, and certainly offensive line and the organization's not really been good to him in that sense. But you know, hopefully this. This is a lesson for him. Probably not, fellas, but we'll see where it goes. Um, 
guys, staying in Ohio and speaking of underperforming teams, the Bengals shook things up as rookie head coach Zach Taylor told starting quarterback Andy Dalton, a fellow ginger, I should point out, uh, that he's no longer the team's <laughs> starting quarterback. What, redheads can't play in the NFL? Come on. Um, now, here's the deal. You NC State fans, um, uh, rookie Ryan Finley, former NC State QB, uh, will take the reins Sunday when Cincy returns from its bye week or next week from Sunday. But he had nine touchdown passes, eight INTs for the winless Bengals. Not great numbers, but when an NFL team needs a spark, the QB can be the odd man out. So, Ian, does Dalton deserve being that odd man out? I think it's time for for the Bengals to see what they have in Ryan Finley. I mean, they did trade up in the fourth round of this year's draft to get him, so they did regard Finley well. Of course, college is different from the pros, but Finley coming off an outstanding senior season at NC State, passing for nearly 400 yards and 25 touchdowns. He's passed for over 10,000 yards in his career uh, at NC State. And Andy Dalton, I think, you know, after nine years, I, I think uh, we know what we've got, uh, and the Bengals know what they, they've got uh, with Andy Dalton. Uh, they're, they're not going anywhere this season. Uh, see what uh, they have in Ryan Finley. Uh, the, the biggest criticism I would have with the Bengals and how they handled this is that if they were going to bench Andy Dalton, why not trade him? Uh, you know, you had the, the trade deadline this past Tuesday. Uh, you have teams that are looking for a quarterback. Uh, I don't know if the Chicago Bears, for instance, would bench Mitchell Trubisky for a veteran like Andy Dalton, but you know why not see if a veteran could do something with that team where Trubisky has struggled, or, or the Tennessee Titans, or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, teams that are looking for a quarterback. Meanwhile, from what I understand, you know the Bengals were in London, and instead of uh, you know trying to figure out what they might do uh, before the trade deadline. The Brown family, which owns uh, uh, the Bengals, they were vacationing uh, in England uh, over the past week. Sure, you can still conduct business over the phone uh, and so forth, but in terms of running a football team at this time uh, of the year, this time uh, on the NFL calendar, did they really handle this with Andy Dalton as well as they could have? Yeah, it's clear, or it's Cincinnati, Mike. Uh, Somewhere Paul Brown in, in his grave isn't real happy. He is spinning, bro. <laughs> he, might, he might be coming out of the grave. You know, you talk about a season that can go haywire. You know, the Dolphins were pretty much ready to tank from day one. But the Bengals, you know, they about beat the Seahawks in, in, in week one. They, they led light. They about had my Buffalo Bills. Game three made a great comeback. Led light. You know, but, boy, you don't get those wins early. And it's it's close, but no cigar, and, and and then it just kind of mushrooms on you. And this is what's happened to Cincinnati. They're they're not as bad as the Dolphins, the Redskins, but they're just. But unfortunately, those early losses, those close losses, just you know, just come back to bite you in the end. Yeah, and I think there's some question as to whether Zach Taylor uh, is a uh, a viable NFL coach, a rookie coach's first season. Uh, he was on the. Uh, Los Angeles Rams staff, but I don't think uh, Taylor has been particularly impressive no. uh, in his uh, coaching thus far. Uh, yeah, not a good start for the rookie, and I think sometimes you got to be real careful. Not everyone's a Sean McVay, even if you're around Sean McVay, and that seems to be a bit of a trend in the NFL, hiring these young, uh, really, um, you know, just incredibly bright offensive minds. But it's not working in Cincinnati. It's working in Green Bay right now um, as, as well. All right, let's move on. Ian Castleberry joining the Wise Guys. We're talking NFL Gold Nuggets presented uh, by D.C. Creaseman Jewelers. All right, let's go here. More Bengals news, guys. Uh, all pro wide receiver uh, A.J. Green wants a long-term deal from the team. Or he says, go ahead and just release me. Okay, not good timing for uh, that request with Green yet to play this year due to an ankle injury, and he's also 32. Uh, Ian, I can't imagine the Bengals would give Green a long-term deal. Of course, 
well, these are the Bengals here, maybe a franchise tag, but we're, we're talking, uh, again, the Bengals. So uh, how do you think the, uh, the team deals with A.J.'s request? Uh, I think they are going to follow through and, and release him at the end of the season. You know, he'll be 32 years old next season, coming off uh, an ankle injury. Uh, 2018 uh, was not a stellar season for him either, uh, just 700 yards receiving. Granted, he only played in nine games uh, because of injury. But if the Bengals are indeed uh, uh, in rebuild mode, you know, going with Ryan Finley as their quarterback, uh, signing a veteran receiver, uh, you know, might help Ryan Finley uh, look better. But do you really want to invest uh, that kind of money, even uh, with a franchise tag, uh, in an aging wide receiver rather than spread that money throughout the roster and uh, find some younger talent at that position? Um, yeah, Cincinnati. I mean, it's it's just a mess there. And but hopefully they can stick with with Zach Taylor and, and maybe give him time to turn it around. But they were certainly expecting more from Andy Dalton, AJ Green, uh, not there. That's your top guy. So you know you you got to give Zach Taylor uh, perhaps a little bit of breathing room. Uh, Ian, the NFL's trade deadline pretty quiet unless you're a Rams defensive back Akeem to leave. He was traded by the team to the winless Dolphins. He goes from L.A. to Miami. I mean, that's just like throwing him off a cliff, basically. Ian, with the Rams looking to sign recent acquisition Jalen Ramsey, was this a case of Tlaib himself being the odd man out? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the the uh, Rams, uh, you know, making room for uh, Jalen Ramsey on their roster with this move, but uh, this is uh, more like a trade you would see in the NBA, where the Dolphins they they took on the cap hit four million dollars basically to get the fifth round draft pick that they received, and then they, they will have that room on their cap afterwards. Uh, Akeem Tlaib is very unlikely, I think, to play a single snap for the Miami Dolphins. He's on injured reserve right now. I, I seriously doubt he'll even report to the Dolphins uh, once he's healthy. So this was a, a total salary dump uh, for the Rams and uh, basically buying a draft pick for the Miami Dolphins. All right. Well, I'll tell you, this is, you know, for the Dolphins, I mean, it's, it's just a hot mess. And, uh, even the, yeah, Tlaib's like, yeah, um, I'll figure this out. I don't think we'll ever see him on the field in a Dolphins uniform. Ian, uh, before we, uh, we got a few more things to get to, but before we get to your, your Thursday night football pick, what other week nine storylines are you following? I think, uh, the big uh, game on this week's schedule, this weekend schedule, week nine, Patriots at Ravens. I think this is the first real test that the Patriots are going to face this season. 8-0 already this season, but who have they really played? Now they have to go on the road to Baltimore and face uh, Lamar Jackson. This is going to be a great test for that Patriots defense. Lamar Jackson not only throwing the ball, but running the ball very well. How are they going to handle that? Uh, the Ravens have the number one rush uh, offense uh, in the NFL versus uh, the Patriots' number four rush defense. I think that's going to be a, a big matchup to watch. And then uh, also uh, in the NFC, I think uh, Bears at Eagles uh, is a game to watch. Uh, both of those teams need a win to stay uh, in the NFC playoff race, but I think it's even more important for the Bears, who are really tumbling down uh, the NFC North uh, standings, whereas the Eagles, I think, are in position for a playoff spot right now in the NFC East. But uh, this is a game, I think, if you're the Eagles, they really need to win that game. And for the Bears, it's virtually a must-win. Uh, yeah, man, this is with the Eagles. I mean, this is an opportunity for them, Mike, I think, to get back in that uh, race in the in the East. The Cowboys... You know they're too inconsistent at this point. Um, this is going to be a fun to watch this last last you know half of the season. That that race was tough for me. Eagles looked very impressive at Orchard Park on um, 
against the Bills on uh, yeah. on uh, on Sunday and stuff. So after hats off to them and stuff, they played they uh, they played very well. But uh, it's interesting. About a year ago, Mitch Trubinsky was going to be the player of the year. He was going to lead the Bears to multiple Super Bowls and. Heard some of the Tar Heel fans talk about. We told you so. You know, this is great, Mitch. He's gonna he's gonna be there for the next ten years. And and now the Bears are talking about about giving him. He's he's just not quite good enough, is he, Mitch? He's just not quite uh. the guy, is he, Ian? They passed on Deshaun Watson, yeah. Patrick Bowes, even Lamar Jackson. The Bears are, are just really never going to get over this unless they uh, find a quarterback. But, yeah, missed badly, traded up to get him when they probably didn't even have to. Right. Uh, remember to get uh, Mitchell Trubisky. It just looks like a disaster. Uh, you know, sometimes I think, oh, maybe they're giving up uh, on Trubisky uh, too soon. But then you watch him play, and I think, no, he's he's actually really bad out there. <laughs> And uh, the Bears could have chosen uh, so much better. Indeed, yeah, now, now you can look back at it. Yeah, but remember, too, the, the Texans, they traded up to get Deshaun. Uh, the Bears had the number two pick, and I think back then, if you look back at it, there was no way at that time Deshaun Watson was even considered. Uh, he was considered to be maybe a late-round, uh, first-round pick, and the Houston Texans saw something in him to move him up, like, what, eight or nine spots uh, to get that shot. And Lamar Jackson, I mean, gosh, yeah. And maybe that's just coaching. I mean, Nagy's a great offensive coach, comes from the Andy Reid school. But for some reason, it's just not working. We've got Deshaun Watson, Bill O'Brien, of course. And then you've got, you know, Harbaugh and his coaching staff are doing a great job with Deshaun Watson. And um, sometimes it's the coaching as well. Sometimes it's something else. But Trubisky, Mike, does not look comfortable. I mean, if I'm a Bears fan, Frank Crocker, if you're listening, every time Trubisky goes back to pass, I kind of get this with Cam, too. I get nervous. And if you're a fan... That's not a good reaction to have with your quarterback. I think I think Mitch needs a different location. I think he's got potential, but I think he needs a different location. I think he is. It's t- it's hard in a place like Chicago to struggle like he has, and it's just hard. And he's lo- looks like he's lost confidence of his teammates. He just needs yeah. a, he, he needs a new locale. Uh, Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys, presented by DC Creaseman Jewelers. It's our NFL Gold Nuggets feature uh, Thursday night football. San Francisco at Arizona. Thank God this game's in the desert. At least maybe uh, Arizona can have a chance. But Arizona's playing better, I think, than we all thought uh, when the season got underway. But they've won three of their last four games, but coming off a uh, loss last week. So uh, in San Francisco, Ian, of course, undefeated. Are you giving it to the Niners tonight? I am. Mean, the Niners absolutely crushed the Panthers uh, on Sunday, fifty-one to thirteen. I think uh, those who watched that game, uh, you know, discovered just how. Fantastic! The San Francisco defense is the uh, number one pass defense uh, in the NFL. Number one defense in total uh, in the NFL. I think uh, maybe you'd be a little nervous if you're a Niners fan. Road teams typically don't do well. Uh, you know, having to go on the road uh, with a short week uh, for Thursday night, as you pointed out, the Cardinals uh, are playing better and more impressively, they're running the ball really well. You know. Uh, uh, Cliff Kingsbury is known for, you know, that air raid offense, uh, really throwing the ball, uh, but with spreading the field and a quarterback who can run like Kyler Murray, the Cardinals are running the ball really well, and that, that could be uh, the key uh, for them uh, to, to have some success against the 49ers. Uh, David Johnson's going to be out for the Cardinals, but the Arizona traded for uh, Kenyon Drake uh, this week uh, uh, from the Miami Dolphins, but... I think ultimately that uh, 49ers defense, uh, you know, you don't see that many teams generate a great pass rush just with their down linemen, but uh, uh, the Niners are able to do that. I think uh, they're going to give uh, Kyler Murray a very hard time. Uh, they're favored by nine and a half. 
if I was betting, I would. I think I would take the Niners uh, tonight and the nine and a half points. What do you say, Michael? I, I would agree. Interesting side note about the 49ers. Yeah. Kyle Shanahan's in his third year as head coach of the 49ers. Bill Walsh was in his third year in 1981 when the 49ers came out of nowhere uh, to finish 13-3 and go and win the Super Bowl. You know, uh, Montana, Montana to Clark, Shanahan in his third year. And I think we thought the Fires would be better, but not this much better. So his history repeating itself almost 40 years later. Yeah, no kidding. Niners, uh, by the way. The Niners, yeah, thank you. Uh, Ian Castleberry, you are the absolute best, man. Thanks, as always. Uh, we will catch up Monday. Uh, more baseball news always as it uh, heads off into the off season. Have a great rest of the week, my friend. Thanks for a few minutes. Okay, happy Halloween to both of you guys. Enjoy the rest of your week. Great Thanks a lot. You. you as well. Thanks, Ian. Appreciate you. Ian Castleberry uh, with the Wise Guys, our NFL Gold Nuggets feature with Ian, presented uh, by David Creaseman and the gang at DC Creaseman Jewelers. And that's the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Say hello and leave a like on our Facebook page, which can be found at facebook.com slash the podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-S. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at the podcast. And we'll also take your feedback via email at thepodcast at gmail.com. Now that it's November, the website io9 reminds us that we are now officially in the era of Blade Runner, which takes place, according to the opening title card, in November 2019. The world doesn't quite look as Ridley Scott envisioned, although maybe it's there and we don't quite know it. I remember the first time I saw that movie and immediately wondered what age I would be in the year 2019. Yeah, I'm not saying. And whether or not the world, or at least Los Angeles, would look like what's in the movie. Maybe I'll have to wait until 2046 when the Blade Runner sequel takes place. If I live that long. 27 more years? I don't know, man. Okay, I know. I didn't talk about Watchmen. Again. You may already be sick of me mentioning this, especially if you have no interest in Watchmen, but I want to talk about it. This weekend, I may contemplate relaunching the podcast into a podcast about not watching Watchmen, rather than taking a look at the series every few episodes. I should probably just stop saying stuff like this, but I really hope to get into Watchmen on our next show, after which three episodes will have aired on HBO. We'll also review Terminator Dark Fate. Did they really make another Terminator movie? Really? And depending on how long we go, maybe we'll hit on Edward Norton's Motherless Brooklyn too. It's time to talk some more movies, TV, and pop culture now that baseball season's over. Until then, enjoy that extra hour of sleep with the end of Daylight Savings Time. Ooh, that's going to be nice. So don't-